Welcome to the Kingsway Christian Fellowship Home Service. We hope that you'll be blessed as you listen to this audio sermon streamed live from Melbourne, Australia. Kingsway Christian Fellowship is a family Bible-based non-denominational church preaching Jesus Christ, based in Wonturner. Visit www.kingswaychristianfellowship.com. Now here's Pastor Gary Fitzgerald. Good morning, church, and praise the Lord that we can come together again, though it be on Zoom, but nevertheless, we still have the privilege of being able to come together in fellowship, in worship, and before the Lord, and that is a real blessing to all who are participating. Well, as we get into the Word of God this morning, I do want to um, share with you um, what will be an introduction to a series of um, sermons that I'll minister in the uh, weeks and possibly months ahead. Uh, well, actually for sure. But, um, but nevertheless, we want to consider a series on the cross of Christ, the cross of Christ. And in particular, what is, uh, is known as the seven sayings or seven last words of Jesus himself as he hung there upon Calvary. And so these are very significant words that were uttered from the mouth of our Lord there on the cross of Calvary. And so there have been those who have taken consideration of these sayings and some who have uh, made mention of the fact, some have called them seven sayings of the cross. One had written a book about it. Another one wrote a book called The Cries of the Cross. And so, um, uh, and really they are seven sayings, although in, there are instances where obviously there is a cry as a cries as well. And so we'll differentiate between those as we go along, but they're very, very significant. These are seven sayings, seven cries from the cross and from the mouth of our Lord Jesus Christ that are significant to us all as we consider uh, the revelation that it reveals concerning our Lord and savior. And so, we have what we know as the harmony of the Gospels. And so contained within the Gospels, we have various accounts and various um, writings that have been written by each. And so it's within the harmony of those uh, four Gospels that we draw the seven sayings of the cross of Christ and so or on the cross. And so as we harmonize these, we'll, we'll again identify them. And there are three particularly in Luke. There's also one uh, or two are in the Gospel of John and actually in, uh, three, but one of them is alluded to in the other two Gospels of Matthew and Mark. And uh, there is one uh, in Matthew and Mark as well, which brings a total of seven. So we're going to work through these. Now, let me ask a question. What makes these sayings so important? What makes these sayings so important? And so really the answer lies in the fact that a person's final words have significance. It's as simple as that. I mean, here is Jesus uh, as he's coming to the conclusion of his earthly life. 
and fulfilling the very plan and purposes of God. And as he hung upon that cross, he uttered uh, seven sayings. And so it's those seven sayings that reveal something to us about the plan and purpose of God. They reveal something to us about the heart of God. And we get a revelation uh, concerning our Lord and uh, our God and our Savior. Now, again, I express and emphasize the emphasis of this because in Isaiah chapter 53, in talking about prophetically about our Lord, it compares him as a lamb that was led to the slaughter. But as a lamb that is led to the slaughter, the scripture says in Isaiah 53 verse 7, it says these words, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. And so in the process of his suffering and all that was leading up to the crucifixion and even uh, in the crucifixion itself, we do find some accounts. But for the most part, he subjected himself to the sufferings and to the mistreatment and the uh, all that began to he began to suffer for our sake leading up to Calvary and the Bible says that he was silent he opened not his mouth but yet when he hung upon that cross he spoke seven sayings and in doing so therefore we put significance on these words we can look at them and draw various truths that are associated with them I mean think about it the Bible tells us that in the Garden of Gethsemane Jesus, he sweat great drops of blood. And yet uh, 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 the whole emphasis of his ministry uh, is the cross. He is centered upon the cross. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to make an emphasis of, on the cross as an introduction to the, the series that we're going to consider in the weeks and months ahead. And so here's Jesus. He's in agony of soul. And he's crying out and he's, the Bible said he's, he's sweating great drops of blood. And uh, we know that he yields to the will of the Father when he says, not my will, but your will be done. And it is right after this or shortly after this that the Roman soldiers come after being betrayed by Judas. They present themselves and so uh, they're about to arrest Jesus. And you know the story that Peter pulls out his sword and he, he uh, cuts the... Um, uh, the ear off of the, the, the Roman soldier. So Jesus picks it up and he just puts it back on, so to speak, literally. But Jesus makes a statement there. And uh, he says, uh, don't you understand that I could call down 12 legions of angels? Right now, I could just speak a word and I could just stop all of this. I could slay everyone right at this moment. But, uh, but he says these words, then how could the scriptures be fulfilled? And so again, he's talking about the cross. It is all about the cross. This was why he was born to die. And so the cross was the central theme in the plan and purposes of God. And so here it is leading up to it. He is silent. He, is, uh, he can do anything he wants to, but he subjects himself to the point of death, the death of the cross. And there he speaks the seven sayings that we will consider in time to come. But like I said, I want to lay a foundation this morning. I want to look at the centrality and the significance of the cross of Christ to our own lives personally, to the modern day in which we live and to the church itself in general. Because there's a few things that I want to highlight as I emphasize the cross this morning in light of the modern day in which we live. 
And so uh, let's read uh, our text, which is really just a basis for what I want to share this morning. But it's found in the book of Galatians, chapter 6 and uh, verse number 14, where Paul the Apostle writes. And he says, but God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So here is Paul, the apostle, the apostle. He makes this declaration and it's a statement in which he says uh, uh, that God forbid that I should boast except only in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we know this, obviously, in the work of salvation, in all that our Lord has accomplished at Calvary. And so we have this um, understanding for us in the scriptures about all that he has done. Uh, actually, my mouse just stopped working, so I can't even use that. But nevertheless, praise the Lord, let's just continue. Um, but the, the cross is the central theme in Paul's mind. And he says, God forbid that I should boast in anything, but in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, of which I've been crucified to the world and the world has been crucified unto me. And so the, the cross was central in Paul's mind, having a revelation from our Lord concerning its significance. And, the, and we know that he wrote that no one can boast of anything in relation to the work of salvation because God has done it all. God has accomplished it all, and it has all been accomplished through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the more one begins to understand that, the more one has a clearer understanding of the cross and its significance and its uh, uh, plan in the purposes of God, uh, truly the effect of that is that one is considerably becomes more humbled before the Lord. Uh, we, we begin to just become more thankful, more humble in heart, because we realize that there's nothing that we can bring. Uh, and just to the cross, it is that we cling. And so that is so true as we consider uh, the cross of Christ. And so the Christians boast this morning is in the cross. That's why one of my favorite hymns uh, is the old rugged cross. And so, I mean, again, you could go through all the words in there, but just um, uh, in the, one of the chorus, it says, so I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. And so it is. We will cling to the old rugged cross because that cross of 2,000 years ago speaks even today, amen, and we cannot move beyond the cross. Isn't it interesting? As you journey, even as a Christian, you can move away from the, the centrality of the cross. And so then you, God brings us back. And my experience has always been he brings us always back to the cross. And there we bow the knee. There we repent. There we find grace. There every supply is met because that is our boast. And that is what we cling to, the old rugged cross. There's also that um, other hymn by Isaac Watts in which he wrote, uh, when I survey the wondrous cross. Um, and then he says, on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss lost and poor contempt on all my pride forbid it lord that i should boast 
save in the death of Christ my God. And really that captures the essence of the text that we've just read in Paul's words. He was a man who had a revelation and an understanding of the richest gain that it comes through the cross, that one can only boast in Christ and we pour content on all of our pride. There's nothing that we can contribute. And so again, the understanding of the cross of Christ is so very important to us all. So the question I want to put to us this morning, well, what about the generation of today? When we consider the modern church, when we consider uh, what's going on around us in Christendom, in Christianity as such, uh, is the cross understood as it should be? And I fear not for many reasons. But I'm not the only one. I'm just one that has grown into that. As I have grown into my understanding of the cross over the, over the years, I've seen also around me uh, those that, who are shallow in their understanding of the cross of Christ. And as a result of that, it leads to all kinds of misconceptions and misunderstandings concerning God and his word. But it was A.W. Tozer. Uh, as he in his generation, as he observed what was going on in the church and uh, the modern church of his day, he said these words. He said, the cross can be a dim object for the Christian, barely visible. Now think about that. The cross can be a dim object for the Christian and barely visible. I mean, this is a sad statement because uh, uh, quite, the, quite the contrary. The cross should be central. It is everything that we boast in. It's everything that we hold dear. The cross is all, yet for some, the cross is a dim object that really is not understood. It is very shallow, and as Tozer says, it's barely even visible to them in their Christian life. And even if it is, it's still not appropriated and understood in the manner in which God has intended. And so uh, there are those, for example, that there are Christians, and you may have heard this, they'll say, well, the, the, God forgives on the basis of his love. And so they'll talk about salvation. They'll talk about God's goodness. They'll talk about his grace, and they'll make an emphasis, oh, God is love. And technically, there's, they're, uh, well, they're, they're correct in one sense, but technically they're incorrect because the Bible teaches us clearly this. God forgives on the basis of atoning sacrifice. Yes, motivated by his love, but not just in and of itself. That love is, is, is demonstrated to us in such a way that the, the, the basis of God's forgiveness is not just love in and of itself, but it's on the basis of sacrifice. Without the, remission, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And so sacrifice is central. This brings into view the cross. It is central. And the blood and these things that are related to our redemption. You see, this has been, I think, um, and the understanding of the cross has been a burden, from what I can understand, of many of, of, of men of God that have gone before me. As they have ministered to their uh, generation, this is something that has been identified again and again and again, and so still the truth remains with us today. You may have heard me make reference on numerous occasions, one of the um, uh, great sermons that I've listened to, and I do use that word great, not in a, uh, a common sense, but it's one of the most profound messages that I have heard, 
and it came from the uh, lips of a man by the name of Harold Horton. Uh, in 1943, and it was called The Naked Splendor of the Cross. And uh, I have been inspired by that, uh, that word as it, God deposited it in my heart and as he spoke it to me so many years ago. And uh, I reference to it so often because uh, it, is, uh, it is a message inspired by the Holy Spirit through this particular man to his generation in which he, in 1943, he was addressing the Pentecostal movement and the assemblies of God, even in those days in which he was uh, identifying various aspects that were relevant to his day. And I say in reading some of these things, they are relevant to our day more than ever. But he made various... And I won't go into, uh, uh, I, want, I want to quote some things just quickly, but I won't go into all the aspects of that particular message. But he makes the point and he says, the cross is not a spectacle of entertainment. It's not a spectacle of entertainment. It's not something in which the Christian views this morning and uh, somehow it is something that uh, gives us warm, fuzzy feelings and uh, um, it is an issue of uh, uh, being entertained because we're dealing with something quite serious here when we talk about the cross of Christ. He actually said these words, uh, Harold Horton, he says, Calvary is not sloppiness, nor is it mere sentiment. It is cold logic and scorching realism. Now think about that for a moment. Let those words kind of resonate in our mind this morning. Because he says Calvary is not some sloppy uh, thing in the way in which we view and treat it. But it, and it's not just it, it's not sentiment, but rather it is cold logic and scorching realism because there's something about the cross, though it moves us emotionally. The whole issue of sentimentalism is something that is not central to the message of the cross because the message of the cross is based in the pure logic, it's based in the realistic aspect of God's purposes, and the cross speaks to us various truths. And they hit us hard in many ways, but they teach us and reveal to us the nature and purpose of God. And so the cross of Christ is important. It was again Tozer in his writings. He makes note of what he considered to be the new cross of his day back in the, uh, I think it was 60s and 70s. And he said these words, he says, the cross of popular evangelicalism is not the cross of the New Testament. The new cross does not slay the sinner. The old cross is a symbol of death. God salvages the individual by liquidating him and then raising him again to newness of life. Amen. Now think about that. What is Paul's words in Galatians? He says, I am crucified with Christ. You see, the, the cross, amen, it slays the sinner. For Romans 6 tells us that we, having died with him through death, and so we have been raised to a newness of life, and so uh, uh, we have been, uh, the old man has been crucified, it says in Romans 6. And so, again, the cross, it slays the sinner, and it, because there's a truth, there's a, a cold logical truth that is associated of that. And uh, the cross is a symbol of death. And not just does it speak of the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, but likewise, amen, when we become born again, the Bible says we are new creations. And so something spiritually has transpired and the cross is central 
to that, to that, not only in experience, but in our understanding of the purposes of God this morning. One person said that the crucifixion of Jesus brings us face to face with two seemingly contrary attributes of God, his love and his wrath. Now, again, think about this two seemingly contrary attributes. See, when we think of the cross, we, the, the, our first inclination is to think of, of God's love. And that's okay. That's, that's one side of the coin. But there is another aspect that is often neglected or misunderstood. Uh, that is the issue of God's wrath. And that where Christ, when he hung upon that cross, he became a curse for us in which it went dark in the middle of the day and in which he cried out as one of his cries is father why have you forsaken me and in christ became sin for us and so god's wrath is being poured out on christ on calvary as much as we see the love of god we are seeing the wrath of god and the justice of god being fulfilled in the cross of jesus christ so let me, let, let me bring to your attention a little bit more concerning the issue of what we, what we call sentimentalism. Because there is a tendency in human nature to consider these various truths and to sentimentalize them to the point where we disconnect from their reality, even though we hold on to them sentimentally in our emotions or in the way in which we, we feel about something. And so again, uh, again, uh, the, the two are meant to go together, but when they're separated, this can be a dangerous thing. But I want to illustrate scripturally this morning how, um, how the issue of sentiment is something that God wants to separate from our, un uh, so that we first and foremost, and if, and if only just had a clear understanding before we had any uh, emotional uh, reaction or attachment to anything that's true. So let me illustrate it. It's actually best illustrated in the book of Leviticus and in the offerings that, uh, that God had ordained. And uh, there's a particular offering that's called the, the grain offering. And it's found in chapter two, in the book of Leviticus verse number 11. Now listen to these words and we'll make some sense of it. It says in verse 11, no grain, offering which you bring to the lord shall be made with leaven obviously leaven being representative and symbolic of sin and the offering itself so it can't be contaminated but he says these words in verse 11 for you shall burn no leaven nor any honey in any offering to the lord made by fire now why does god mention honey he says, okay, we understand the aspect of leaven. That's pretty self-explanatory, but why no honey? And so uh, no, no honey is to be in any offering made by fire to the Lord. And yet we understand that various offerings that are made by fire to the Lord, the Bible refers to them as a sweet smelling aroma, but yet it is devoid of any uh, added um, uh, of sweetness in which honey uh, uh, brings about. You see, the truth of the matter is, is that honey is connected to, to sweetness. And so there was, there's nothing sweet in and of itself about the sacrifice. In actual fact, the, 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 the cross itself is brutal. 
the cross itself is horrific. There's nothing sweet about the cross. You look at it, it is a stark reality. It hits you in its vulgarity and in, in, its, in, in its realism, how, how, how horrific it is. You don't look at that and have wonderful feelings and you get all sentimental about it. You look at it and you're horrified. Could you imagine uh, And we uh, uh, at this? And understand this actually we've been studying the book of genesis and we just looked at the fact that when um uh god clothed adam and eve you know with a skin we look at that and think oh well you know that an animal was sacrificed but adam and eve they would have had to watch an animal be killed stripped the skin removed and then they were clothed with that they would have seen the bloody sacrifice that even took place in the garden but we can just read it flippantly without making the connection and yet, so sacrifice is horrible. That's the point that is, is being made here. And so, um, but yet, in all of that, the Bible says, uh, concerning the grain offering and any offering made by fire unto the Lord, it is a sweet-smelling aroma to God. Because when you look at it and you understand what it means, it does have a sweetness to it. But in and of itself, it, the cross is a bitter thing. You know, when God took the children of Israel out of Egypt and they would partake of the Passover, what were they to partake of? The bitter herbs. And every year when they partook of the Passover, they would partake of the bitter herbs, which was a reminder, not of the sweetness, but the bitterness of life that they had experienced in Egypt, which is symbolic of the world and being under the hand of Pharaoh, under the slavery of death of the devil. And so it's, uh, that's what they would reflect upon as they considered these things. Not honey, but the bitter herbs. So, I mean, think about it. Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane. He's sweating great drops of blood. There's no honey there. There's nothing that's sweet about what's going on in that instance. So it was Harold Horton again that said, uh, about honey, he says it's too sweet to the natural to be considered a sacrifice. It is indulgence. And that's what honey is. It's an indulgence. It's something that, you know, we all like to have a sweet tooth. We like to eat sweet things. And so, um, because, uh, you know, for the most part, no one doesn't like eating something sweet. But you see where, and that's why the sweetness is to be removed from the offering in, in, so that there would be a understanding uh, of the sacrifice of our Lord. But this relates also to the presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so there are those in preaching the gospel, in presenting the gospel, that have sought to make the gospel sweet. I remember uh, uh, when I was pastoring a church a number of years ago, one of the men came in and he said that he had visited a church and at the end of the church service, they, they gave everyone strawberries and cream. Could you imagine that? Eh? Strawberries and cream at the end of church. I mean, just to sweeten things up. But you see, this is an example of exactly what Horton is warning against. This is the very thing that we need to avoid. They want to make, they, they're adding an indulgence into the service. They're adding an indulgence into a presentation of the gospel that they are taking away from the stark reality. And they are sentimentalizing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me read to you again what Harold Horton had said in his day, 1943, now think of it today. He said, the great sin of today is that we have relegated the cross 
to a secondary place, planning attractive introductions to its severity. We cannot use the cross as a lucky charm. Many wear a cross of gold, using that which is to destroy self to attract attention to self. And he's talking about the wearing of a cross and, uh, and, and the motivations that are behind that. Again, the cross is a symbol of death. It's not a sentimental thing. I mean, Jesus was crucified on a cross. That's why I say in the modern day, if Jesus died on an electric chair, some, you know, 30, 40 years ago, would we all wear an electric chair around our neck? You see, we must do away with the sentimentality. That's the point, because there is a stark reality that is associated with the cross. So Horton goes on to say, he says, we must beware of the honey of sweet sentiment. There must be no effeminate sentiment influencing our services or messages. And I would say to you that in, when I hear those words and I look at the modern church, we see uh, an infiltration uh, of, of effeminacy, sentimentalism that's influencing the services that's influencing the messages and everyone's feeling it you know and they all feeling it and then they say can you feel the presence of god well i can tell you now there is no uh presence of god what they are feeling they have just uh, added so much sweet and honey to their services that they think and mistake a feeling for the presence of god literally dim let's dim down the lights let's get all the smoke screens let's get the lights flashing and we create an environment that you feel sentimentalism but there's no cross there's no cold logic and scorching reality of the cross of christ why because the cross if you present it that way is offensive it's confronting it's horrific and so again Horton, Harold Horton will go on to say, and he says, the perverted love and human sentiment of this modern day must be refuted and rejected. And to that, I say, amen. And again, let's illustrate this further and how God views it. In the book of Malachi, God is speaking. And in Malachi chapter two, listen to what it says. It says in verse 13, and this is the second thing that you do. This is the second charge that God's indictment, that God's bringing against these people. He says, you cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, with crying. So he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Now that's important. I mean, these people are offering an offering to the Lord. But in doing so, and there, there's emotion. These people, are, uh, there's tears, there's weeping, there's crying. And yet God says, this is the very thing that, I'm, that, is, uh, uh, that is, uh, uh, I have against you. Because he says, you, I don't regard this offering any longer because it's not presented with goodwill from your hands. Oh, yeah, the sentiment is there. It's filled with honey. But there, you're not living a life where you've taken up your cross and are following me. You're not living a life in obedience, but you go through the ritual of the, of the altar and then you go and live your own way and do your own thing. And this is exactly what we see in the modern church today. We can come together and sing Kumbaya, but what is it what happens outside of our gathering? How do we live from day to day? What is our life before the Lord? 
because that's what God's looking at. You can come to the altar every Sunday and come to church and sing your worship songs and all of those things. But if you're not, and you can cry and weep before the Lord, but if you're not living in obedience and walking worthy before God, then how can God accept, how can that be acceptable in the sight of God? God's not interested in the honey. Isn't it interesting that when Jesus was, on, was bearing his cross and he was going to Calvary, there were the women and they were weeping. And Jesus looked at them and he said to them, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. Why did Jesus say that? Weep for yourselves and for your children. Don't weep for me. Don't look at what I'm going through in my sufferings and just weep for me. And, and, and again, as noble as that may be, but what's Jesus? He's trying to shift the focus away from that in and of itself because he's trying to say, weep for yourselves. Why? Because, because what did he mean by that? Well, he meant a few things, but we can draw from that because um, we are the ones in sin. We are the ones that will die eternally uh, if we are not saved. And so weep for yourselves because you know what? It's my sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. We can read the Gospels and say, oh, my gosh, how could they have done that? Oh, my gosh, look at that. And yet it is representative of human nature. And you begin to realize, wait a minute, it was my sin that nailed Jesus to that cross. And now all of a sudden, rather than weep for Jesus, we begin to weep for ourselves as we see our own sinfulness, as we see our own heart before the Lord. See, this is how it works. Actually, if you can turn to the book of Zechariah, chapter 12. You know, this talks about Israel's salvation, their national salvation. And I, this illustrates further the point that I want to make as well here. Because... There's coming a time, we know that Israel has rejected their Messiah, but there's coming a time, according to the prophets, and in verse 10 of Zechariah 12, the Bible says, And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierce. Now listen, there's a coming a day, they've rejected their Messiah, they've rejected Christ, but there's coming a day when they will look on him whom they have pierced. In other words, they're going to look at the cross. They're going to see the cross in a way that they have never known it before. They will receive a revelation of the cross and the Messiah whom they pierced and hung upon that cross. And it goes on to say in verse 10, yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. So there will be a, a grief for him, but listen to what it says in that day, there will be great mourning in Jerusalem, like the morning uh, at Hadidrimen in the plain of Megiddo and the land shall mourn every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves. And the family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves and the family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves and the family of Shimei by itself and their wives by themselves. All the families that remain, every family by itself and their wives by themselves. Because you know why? Because when you have a revelation of the cross in relationship to yourself, it changes everything. 
it humbles you before God. You come and then like Paul, you, all you can say is God forbid that I would boast. I am, uh, I am a, a wretched man that I am like Paul who will deliver me. And it's Christ and Christ at Calvary. And so here's Israel that day by themselves, they will weep. Not, does, not for, not for the Messiah who was crucified for him, but for themselves because they have him there because they now are understanding it personally. And this is the great need of the hour in which we live. And so again, in light of what I'm saying this morning, reflect upon the words of our text. When Paul says, God forbid that I should boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. We know that Paul would write as he does to the Corinthians. And he says in first Corinthians chapter one, verse 18, he says these words for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God, the power of God. And again, Paul would write to them in first Corinthians and just a little later in his letter in chapter two, verse one, and he would say to the Corinthians, he says, and I, brethren, when I came to you, I did not come with excellence of speech or with wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God, our faith in the power of God. The cross is the power of God because it saves you and me who are utterly unable to save ourselves this morning. And we glory in the Lord. We glory in the cross. We boast only of him and all that he has done. And so I share all this this morning to make the emphasis of the cross of Christ. And so before we later move towards considering those sayings, we can understand and have a clearer perspective of the cross itself. You know, I want to close this with some last thoughts concerning this, because again, the cross was central to the purposes of God. Peter himself in first Peter chapter one, verse 20, he said in he indeed, this is Christ, was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. See, Christ was foreordained before the foundation of the world. Or in other words, the cross, what God was going to accomplish, what God was going to do, it was foreordained before the creation. This was in the mind of God, in his foreknowledge. So the cross is so central. That's why you have Jesus. His whole purpose is to fulfill the purposes of God. His whole focus is the cross. Let me illustrate to you this to you. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 50. He makes a prophecy concerning Christ. And it says in verse seven, for the Lord God will help me. Therefore, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I will not be ashamed. And in all that Christ was to go through, the Bible speaks that he has set his face as a flint, meaning that I am fixed 
I am focused. And this is reiterated in Luke's gospel, chapter 9, in verse 51. It says, Now it came to pass, when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem like a flint. He had determined it's time for me to go to the cross. He is fixed. He is focused. He is determined and he will not be deterred. He is going to the cross as he was foreordained to do so with this. And so as the scripture tells us, remember at 12 years of age, he's in the temple. He's talking to the high priest. What did he say to them? Or he said, I should say, what did he say to his mother when she came looking for him? He said, I must be about my father's business. You see, these words, I must, they are central to the words that we find in the scripture. At 12 years age, I must be about my father's business. In Luke, we find Jesus says, I must preach the kingdom of God and uh, the gospel to other cities. In John's gospel, chapter nine, Jesus says, I must work the him, work the works of him who sent me. And in Luke 9, again, he says, the son of man must suffer. And these are the musts, all these things that he must go through, all these things he must do. He must go to the cross. And he does. And what happens on there? The words he speaks are of significance. But the cross is so central this morning, church. And I pray that just as it was for, for, for Jesus so it was for Paul, and so it is for us. The cross must be the central theme for us, and so it is. Jesus says that we have to take up our cross and to follow him. The cross is central to us, and it must not become just a sentimentalized thing. We must not make the disconnect between the sentimentalism and between the reality and the scorching truths of the, of the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, when Jesus hung upon that cross, and I make this last point as I conclude this morning, when he hung upon that cross, although he had already suffered and so much, the Bible says that his appearance was marred more than any other man. I mean, I'd probably be unconscious at that point in time. I don't know. I'd probably be half dead, not knowing what's going on in my mind. But you see, the thing with Christ, as he hung upon that cross, he, he wasn't sentimental. He wasn't uh, uh, emotional. He wasn't disorientated. He was Christ. He was fixed and he was focused and he was in full control of his mind. I mean, he was in full control of his, of his faculties. He's, 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 he, he, the vigor that he had internally was still intact, even though he was physically weakened. And so he had a strength of soul and a strength of mind. And it was this that led to him declaring the last seven sayings that he said when he hung upon that cross. And those words give us great revelation into the heart of Jesus, into the plan and purposes of Christ that we're going to consider as we go forth. But I pray that the message, this introduction, this message this morning concerning the cross is one that will bless us. May the Lord bless you this morning. Amen. God bless you.